Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Engaging the Phenomenon. And today we have the absolute pleasure and honor of having with us the great Richard Haynes. Welcome, Richard. James, it's a pleasure to be here. And I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's it's so great to have you on here. I, I came across your work personally in around 2007. And, you know, when I was going across YouTube and I found the Disclosure Project Witness Testimony and I had, you know, thankfully I had seen you on there. So that's when I, my, uh, you first caught my attention with your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, part of that was because, you know, obviously you sounded incredibly intelligent and knew what you were talking about. But when I looked up your background, I was just, I was just incredibly impressed in that, uh, you know, somebody of your caliber was involved in investigating and studying the UFO phenomenon. So you're actually a PhD. So for people listening, can you describe a little bit of your background? Sure. Uh, sure. Um, I did graduate work at Michigan State University on the subject of how light scatters within the human eye. And uh, way back in the 60s. And I said to myself, I'm never going to find a job. Who needs that? How important is that? Um, and come to find out, uh, I received a, a postdoctoral fellowship with the National Research Council out of Washington. And it was located at a NASA test center out in California called Ames Research Center. Um, and so what I did there and they asked me to do was to design and build a vision research lab that we could simulate the way things look to the astronauts in space. They needed that for the Gemini program, um, the Apollo program, of course. Uh, they just finished the Mercury program. And so this laboratory involved a surgical clean room, um, very clean air, and a solar simulator that would put real sunlight into this dark room, black walls and so forth. And to look at rendezvous and docking kinds of issues related to Gemini, two-man capsule, by the way. And lo and behold, I discovered a light scatter within the human eye is important. And in fact, it was very important to the astronauts going into space. So I could talk for a long time, and I'm sure you don't want me to, but that's how I got started. Yeah. So, you know, you're a NASA research scientist. You worked on the Gemini and Apollo programs, uh, but you were also involved in things like uh, NARCAP and and air and you have something called AirCat. So um, also for the guests listening, you, you publish a number of books on um, UFOs, some that are not easy to, to get nowadays because I suspect they're out of print, but uh, some of them were Project Delta, uh, another book called Observing UFOs. Uh, another one which I found incredibly intriguing by the title, which I do want to get into, is called uh, The UFO Phenomenon and the Behavioral Scientist. And of course, you, you published a book called CE5, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. And so that's kind of a um, a vast subject. You have a, a lot of really uh, important work there. But um, just to start off um, with that, you know, again, you're a NASA research scientist. How did you end up looking at UFOs? 
Okay, that's a good question. Uh, I've been asked that question many times. Um, in the process of researching flight uh, displays in cockpits, airplanes, um, I was involved in a number of flight simulator research projects at NASA in, in California, um, where I had an opportunity to talk with and, and meet a lot of commercial airline pilots because NASA would hire them to come in for research purposes to fly the simulator for research. And oftentimes I would be permitted to fly co-pilot seat and to handle flaps and gear and other cockpit uh, controls so that they could concentrate on flying the airplane or whatever the, the task was. Uh, and after we are done flying the simulator, they'd oftentimes come back to my office for whatever reason to say goodbye or to pick up some uh, a briefcase they left there or whatever. And I just happened to, to ask them in their flying career, had they ever seen anything they couldn't identify? And I didn't expect any positive answers. I was kind of a skeptic at that point, uh, not really believing in, in the reality of this whole thing. But it wasn't very long before I started meeting uh, pilots who started telling me these strange stories that made no sense to me. From a science point of view, they didn't fit. And so uh, that's how I kind of got baptized, so to speak, uh, got started in the aviation end of things. I had done some field research before that, but those were ground observers, lights in the night sky sort of thing. Um, almost no information content there. But when you talk to a pilot, you are flooded with information and it's valuable information. And he's flying an airplane, usually with a lot of instrumentation on it, uh, a lot of... Uh, frequency dependent or related information that might relate to the phenomenon. And so that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. Uh, that was my initial initiation uh, that led to NARCAP. Yeah. And again, it's uh, such an important topic, you know, nowadays, because you have a number of, uh, you know, Navy and military pilots coming forward saying that, you know, they have witnessed UFOs and, you know, subsequently the, you know, United States uh, footage, the, the gun camera footage came out from, uh, you know, the Nimitz incident and the gimbal and the go fast videos, which people are still debating um, because of the, you know, they're trying to explain the videos and apparently you know, the United States uh, Pentagon has more infor information, but they're not releasing it because it's classified. So, you know, we're in that kind of difficult situation. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure you dealt with a, a little had, had you spoken to both um, both military and, and public pilots. So you got to see both sides of it. Sure. And private pilots and test pilots, too. Sure. The whole gamut. Right. And um, was there. Ever a time, I guess, when you're when you're dealing with a military witness and they're like, you know, they can't divulge certain information because it's classified? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I made it a point in my career not to delve into those areas, uh, not only because they wouldn't say, me, say anything to me, 
but I might, uh, that might be a liability for me professionally. So I just didn't do it. Right. Um, so, you know, speaking of um, the, uh, the flight safety issue, uh, you know, how did you get involved with uh, NARCAP? Mm-hmm. Well, it was back in about 1999. And I met with a young man by the name of Ted Rowe. And uh, he had had a very interesting experience himself with two other adults with him at the same time. And after he told me uh, his story, I was very intrigued and I continued to look into it and interview all three witnesses. Uh, We got to talking over coffee one day. Um, What could we do to contribute to ufology? It was called ufology back then that would have a practical basis. Much of ufology has been very passive, um, very self-oriented, and didn't seem to give anything back to society. It was usually motivated by curiosity. And so we came up with this idea, well, how about flight safety? Because so many Americans fly, so many world people in the world fly that if we could find a relationship between this phenomena in any of its forms and flight safety, we might be able to make flying safer. And so that's basically how we we began. And it grew from there. And we realized uh, because of the quality of the reports we were getting uh, that we were really on to something. And so Ted became the executive director, and I took over the position of chief scientist. And so we gathered a team of experts in many areas um, because we didn't want this to be a typical UFO organization. And in fact, we took steps to to keep our distance from UFO organizations. Uh, On the other hand, we wanted to be close to like the NTSB, for instance, National Transportation Safety Board, since they uh, do a lot of investigations of accidents and near misses and so forth. Uh, And to stay close to the Aviation Safety Reporting System at NASA, since they receive routinely a lot of of incident and accident uh, reports from pilots and air crew and um, air traffic controllers and anyone involved in the aviation community. And so with this kind of group of meteorologists, physicists, astronomer, uh, human factors, psychologists, uh, we had a team that could evaluate cases. And so we started to receive some really interesting cases. And in almost every case, we published it, wrote it up and analyzed it, published it, and put it out on the internet for anybody to have. We didn't cover anything up. Yeah. And actually, uh, you know, you had a number of events. Um, in. I, I do want to shift gears now a little bit and, and talk about uh, your CE5 book. Okay. So how how did that come about? You know, how did how did it become that Dr. Richard Haynes wrote about CE5? Okay. Um I met Stephen Greer 
at a conference in Colorado years and years ago. And he had just pretty much just established SETI, C-SETI. Yeah. You're familiar with that? Yeah. Okay. And we got to talking and I was impressed by the proactive approach he was using. It wasn't passive. He wasn't waiting for the phenomena to come to him on its own, but rather to use human ingenuity to try to signal somehow the phenomenon and cause a, a meeting, if you will, or an approach, a close proximity on the basis of what the human did. So the human's in charge, so to speak, up to a point at least. And I said to myself, that, that makes sense. That's a, a, that is an intelligent approach, even if you don't agree with some of the dimensions of what he was, was dimensions, wrong word, some of the approaches he was using yeah. to cause the, the encounter, so to speak. Um, and then he asked me to serve on his executive advisory board, which I did for a while and learn more about CSETI and so forth. And I realized that no one up to that time had done a rather systematic review of the literature. Are there any cases published of that kind? And you could point to some, but not very many. And so I started looking at the the, the evidence, basically, in, in the published literature, and uh, I was shocked because cases started popping up from many, many different countries, um, time zones, religious backgrounds didn't matter, uh, racial heritage didn't matter, uh, the, the CE5 approach is something that seemed to catch on just to the human psyche, the, the earthling psyche. So I started collecting them and writing them up in chapter, you know, different sections of, of the book, trying to look for patterns, trying to see what I could extract out of them. What do they have in common? How do they differ and so forth? Uh, and I discovered some really interesting findings, uh, which I'll be glad to share with you if you want. That's up to you. Yeah, I'd love to. And, you know, for people uh, watching and listening, I have the book right here. It's this book in is is historical, in my opinion, um, because it's, you know, oftentimes I think people throw out the baby with the bathwater in regards to CE5 because they hear the name Stephen Greer and they they have a knee jerk reaction. And I understand that. I totally understand that. Mm hmm. Uh, and and again, some of the way he explains it could sound far out to somebody, sure. um, but in you know, there's a, some kind of process, or you know, in some way, the human, uh, you know, Earth human could be the participant in somehow um, getting a response from UFO intelligence, <laughs> um, sure. or you know, actually would you know, based on um, I don't know if you would change your definition. I think in the book here it says. Um, a close encounter of the fifth kind refers to any reported experience of deliberate human behavior that was soon followed by an obvious response from a UFO and or humanoid and which included other effects suggesting it was not coincidental in short human initiated contact. Uh, would you, would you revise that all at all today? No, no, not at all. 
James, one of the things that I looked at rather closely was the time do domain. How much time happens between A and B and C and D? Yeah. Um, and let me give you an example that if you are in a dark room, pitch black room, and there's a large mirror on the opposite wall from you, but you have a flashlight and you flash your flashlight into that mirror, into Morse code. If you, let's say, you know, Morse code, um, you will get an immediate response back and it will be a, an a identical reply to what you have sent, but it's only a reflection of yourself. And so I eliminated any case where there was an immediate reply back from the phenomenon. There had to be a delay, I think five seconds or more, which says that either they have the ability to store and then replay, or they're initiating their own response back to you. And what I'm looking for is signs of intelligence. To me, this is one of the most important questions that we can try to answer in this whole field. Is there some form of or a degree of intelligence somehow related either within or directing like robotics, you know, um, of intelligence? And I, if you've read my book in the back, there's a number of um, uh, pages devoted to this subject of intelligence. And I'm come, I have to say publicly that I'm coming to the opinion that the answer is yes. Yeah. And for me to say that, I'm retired now, so I'm not going to lose my job. <laughs> uh, but I, I honestly have to say that, that there is evidence that supports the hypothesis or the, even the, the assertion that there's intelligence behind the phenomena. That still doesn't say where they come from. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a totally different question. Correct. You, know, you might, might say it's the Pentagon. <laughs> well, so when, you know, when we're looking at the UFO phenomenon and, and, and that sense, trying to, uh, you know, judge intelligence, what are, what are some indicators um, that suggest that whatever's behind the UFO phenomenon, phenomenon well, I, is acting? I'd have to go get my copy of the book and <laughs> turn to that page. But as I recall, um, I broke the book deliberately into different chapters Chapter one was human, uh, friendly human behavior right. that initiated yeah. the contact. And I found quite a number of interesting cases there. Persons out walking their dog at night and they see a light or an object come near above, above them and they wave at it. Okay. Well, that's just friendly behavior. Or they might have a flashlight or they flash the flashlight at it, get a response back. Or a pilot flying along, minding his own business, and a, an object comes along one way. And so the pilot somehow wants to communicate, either out of fear or curiosity. He wiggles his wings, okay? He, he, he does this. Yeah. The object does this, okay? Yeah. So that's friendly. That, that's not aggressive. Second chapter in the book deals just with cases where the human behavior is is aggressive, angry, violent. And I have I found that that was the largest number of cases. Let's think about that. The nature yeah. of man. OK, it says yeah. something more about us than it does about the phenomenon. Um, 
shooting guns, rockets, bows and arrows, throwing rocks, <laughs> a very wide range of, of aggressive behavior, uh, meant either to protect the, in, the human because he's doing it out of a defensive reason or offensive because he's angry or uh, even fearful that would lead to that kind of aggressive behavior as well. Um, wonderful story from the Korean War, uh, which I wrote in one of the chapters of the a Korean book, um, Advanced Aerial Devices Reported During the Korean War, published that years and years ago. And it's only cases taken from the Korean War period. But that private Wall was his last name. Um, he reported to me and to John Timmerman of Kufos uh, the account he had of a CE-5, a close encounter of the fifth kind during combat during in the Iron Triangle near Chorwan uh, with the enemy up to the north side of them and they're aiming artillery. He's in an artillery battalion. Uh, very impressive, believable story by a veteran of the Korean War. A lot of details, a lot of useful, I wouldn't say scientific details, but from the larger picture there, they all fit together. So that was another example of, of human aggression. Finally, there was a chapter, there is a chapter in that book that has to do with mental contact, which Stephen Greer uh, follows. Uh, he believes that works and he tries to find if it does. And uh, he may be receiving some heat for doing that, but you have to give him some credit for striking out in a new creative area or, or approach that hasn't been tried before. Right. And I think what's important about that too, and I, you know, I've had contact experiences and after the experience is something that had the realization had dawned on me, um, you know, in so many of these cases, even that um, Jacques Vallée and, J and J. Allen Hynek reported on, and, you know, so much so that Dr. J. Allen Hynek created the terms high strangeness mm -hmm. to, to implicitly uh, direct attention towards that aspect of the phenomenon where, and again, Jacques Vallée, with Dr. Eric Davis, they wrote the the six layer model of uh, anomalous phenomena, and you know the psychic component or mental contact is something that's reported in so many encounters that you know there seems there's something there to it. Maybe we don't understand it with the way that we think about it is in a certain way is how we're trying to understand it, an advanced technology uh, potentially interacting with us. You know, um, so I do think that is that is such an important uh, topic to discuss. Mm -hmm. um, and again, uh, you know, we were talking before, but even what's discussed in, in, in the ATIP slide nine, right? It's talking about cognitive human interface, which I, I discussed with Lua Lozando here um, and I've discussed with others, but you know, there is an aspect of the phenomenon that seems to delve into that, you know, psychic phenomenon, mental phenomena, or, you know, as SAIC wrote when they did their study, anomalous mental phenomena. Um, and of course, people like 
Now, Dr. Kit Green and Dr. Gary Nolan have been looking at individuals who had reported this who also have an augmentation in, in the caudate nucleus um, of the basal ganglia of the brain. Um, but um, were there were there any specific cases in that book, uh, the CE5 book, that also stood out to you? Hmm. Well, the Korean case was interesting from the standpoint that the response that the object gave back to him firing a rifle bullet at it and actually striking it, it was armor-piercing round he had in his M1 uh, rifle, that the object itself, he said to me, first of all, changed from an orange color. Well, first of all, it had come up the hill from a lower altitude to slightly above their altitude where the guns were emplaced. Uh, the howitzers. Um, And the first thing that the object did was to change brightness and color. And it went to a very bright white. The second thing it did was to start to move around very erratically as if it's saying, try to hit me now. Okay, it didn't like to be fired at, I guess. The third thing he said it did was it emitted a low frequency sound that reminded him of a diesel diesel locomotive engine, okay? Well, those are very interesting three specific behaviors of the phenomenon of CE5 in response to the human shooting a gun at it, all right? And hitting it, basically. Um, He said that the next thing that happened was the guys in his battalion um, started getting their guns firing at it as well. And he said, after his bullet hit and ricocheted off the surface, apparently, and and it went into this gyration, all the other guys in the group started firing the the big calibers at it. And he said, none of them would reach the surface of the object. There was somehow, he liked the word force field. We don't know what it is. Uh, So let's fast forward now a number of years, and this is also in the book, where two hunters are out hunting, I think, ducks on a foggy morning somewhere in Southeast America. I don't remember where it was. It's too many years now. Um, They're out hunting ducks with shotguns. And they hear and see a large metallic object slowly coming above them from one side to another. And one of the guys aims his shotgun at it and shoots it, fires shotgun at it. Uh, And he described in his report, the object went through the same three steps as the Korean object did in the same order. Think about that. Now, you can say that's a sign of intelligence. I I don't put it in that category myself. But there's something uh, that adds realism. The only possibility is that those two hunters could have read the soldier's account somewhere, which wasn't published, by the way, at that time. Uh, He didn't relate that to John Timmerman until much later. Um, So... I think they have to be telling a pretty accurate account of what happened. Um, That's my my analysis or interpretation of that. Um, So again, the Korean case, I think, is a good one. 
uh, followed up by this other case I've just mentioned from southeastern America. I think Arkansas or Mississippi, somewhere in that region. Um, but the book has 243 cases documented there um, and analyzed on different criteria to try to look for patterns, uh, to try to look at what could support an intelligence hypothesis. Okay. Yeah. And do you recall the, um, as I believe it was 1992 or 1993, um, Volcano, uh, the Mexico story with uh, Seti and Stephen Greer? Oh, yes. Yes. He told me about that. Yeah. That was another. What about, what about it? That was another fascinating case, uh, which, yes. you know, isn't reported on as much as I would have liked to seen it reported on. Uh, do you want to say anything about that case in particular? No, not particularly. It's pretty well documented. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't the only witness. Right. Yeah. He had other people with him. And that's important. That really is important. Uh, well, let me ask you a question, if I may. Um you said you've had some kind of experience, but you haven't really said what would it, would you say it was a CE five? Some, some were. Yeah. I mean, some, the, the, well, because the first couple that, that happened, I did not, I didn't initiate. However, during, during the fact there was an obvious kind of interaction mm-hmm. and that definitely gets into the high strangeness aspects because some, some of the interaction there was this in, insane level of synchronicity that led up to one of the encounters that included a daytime sighting of a fireball, right? In a clear blue sky. Mm. And as soon as I thought to it, holy crap, that's a UFO. It starts to move. Right. Uh-huh. And you know, that was one experience and there's a number of others. So after a number of these experiences happened, I, I said, you know, I had to find an answer to this kind of thing. Right. I'm off on this, uh, exploration basically, and I came across the work of CE5. Mm-hmm. So after after learning about it, and when I heard you know Stephen Greer talking about it, I'm like, there's something there because what he the way he's describing it is exactly how I experienced it. So that's you know there's certain nuanced details you couldn't know unless you would have experienced it, in my opinion. So that's mm-hmm. so I took what he was saying was seriously. Not, not to mention also because I saw the disclosure project and saw all the witnesses he's, he'd gathered. Um, so then I, I said, okay, I'm going to try this, right? I, I believe it will work because when I heard about it, I was like, why didn't I think of that? And even, even I got your book early on, you know, too. So, um, I, I tried it and, uh, there was a, there's been, uh, a number of times where I've done CE5 and had a, a number of witnesses to some pretty remarkable events. Um, so can I ask if you did how many of those you did alone by yourself as a, as opposed to having other people with you? Oh, wow. I mean, I I've done a lot more on my own because it, just cause it's easy to, um, but I've, I've done many uh, with, with groups, right. With people oh. who are interested in doing it. But there, there was also times where I did it and pulled witnesses over and, you know, family members and said, hey, come out here, look at this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how successful do you think you were in uh, 
attracting the attention or bringing it in or whatever. Uh, I mean, there's no question in my mind that there was a direct correlation with my participation and the event occurring Uh, completely. Yeah. I mean, for sure that's. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Now I have to ask another question then. Yeah. Uh, Do you think that you're being initiated into something? Right. So that's the question, right? Where does it truly begin? Right. Yeah. So what, What's give me your angle on that initiation? <laughs> well, it's it is unusual for human beings on this planet to experience an anomalous event, uh, and in fact, that's one of the chapters in my first book, uh, UFO Phenomenon: The Behavioral Scientist. How do adults process a new, brand new experience that they have as an adult? It happens all the time as a child. That's that's normal for a child. But how does an adult do it? Okay. And so psychologists go into this a lot. Uh, they really do. Uh, so that when when you are dealing with your own experience, um, you're faced with a lot of conflicting, I would call it garbage. Garbage is, is a pejorative word. I don't mean it negatively. A lot of um irrelevance maybe that's a better word irrelevant experiences you had that don't fit and so you're trying to pare it all down and uh, get to the the core which is is it real (laughs) am i going crazy (laughs) um anyway i've interviewed a lot of people who claim close encounters and abduction, by the way. And I've been impressed with their their believability. They believe 100% it happened to them, whatever it was. And the question is, do I? And from a science point of view, I wasn't there. Nothing was recorded. No records were kept was a private experience for the people involved. And so from a science point of view, it's almost almost zero information content. I would like to, to see the science of ufology or UAP research go in the direction of science that collects more useful data for scientists to look at. That was one of the objectives of writing object, uh, Observing UFOs, which was a series of articles originally I wrote for APRO, if you know about APRO, yeah. a long time ago, um, trying to help the man on the street do a better job of reporting, recording, keeping track of his ex- or her experience so that others could come along later and make some sense out of it rather than just saying I saw a light in the night sky, which has zero content, you know, of importance to us. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me just a minute. Yep. Yeah, hold on. Hello? Hi, fine. Uh, Rebecca, can I call you back? I'm uh, kind of tied up at the moment. I sure will. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Uh, 
so going back to your own CE5, which it may or may not be, but let's say it is, um, did you record anything? What, what's, what is outside your brain? Yeah, right. Uh, did you make any drawings or recordings of time and place and all that? I, I wrote about the time and the place. I mean, I have all that documented. I didn't take a picture. Um, there's So out of all the experiences, um, I mean, some of them I was just in so, I was just so much in shock that there sure. was something going on and I couldn't sure. even, right. again, I, I went through the whole process of, uh, you know, are, are you seeing things? Are you going crazy? Uh, is this really here? You got to grab a witness so they can see it. They see it. Yes. Kind of thing. Um there's been a few occasions where we did CE5 subsequently, and there's been a few pictures and video, but nothing that you can point to and say that's completely anomalous phenomena. You know, within the entire CE5 field, there's a few interesting videos, I would say, mm-hmm. um, that they, some of them are very interesting, but the the videos on them on, you know, by themselves aren't going to really make or break mm-hmm. kind of the bigger reality because you know you can say that's a genuine video it looks it looks authentic but then to say it's it's uh extraterrestrial spacecraft or, or, or an interdimensional spacecraft that's you know science can't make that leap and you know because of that there's a certain group of people that yeah automatically will discount it right and i i get it it's a big it's a big thing um, to take in, right? Especially if there was some kind of program to conceal the reality of it from the American public or, you know. So so to, if I read between the lines you've just said, you really are still at the stage of a personal private experience that you're trying to understand <clears throat> as opposed. Now, here's the option, and that is to uh, help the larger body of let's call it science or technology to get involved and to, to do a serious study of the phenomenon. Would that be fair? Yeah. I mean, I really, I'm really hoping people do. I, I'd like to bring sure. attention to the issue. Um, but are you I, documenting it and sharing it in a way that expands into the science community makes it credible? I haven't, I I know there's some people who have put reports in, but there's, there's no real place that you put reports in for that, that I know of. And there's, there's UFO organizations out there, but you know, there's, you know, I, I don't want to name anyone in particular and saying they're doing bad things, but you know, there's been examples of somebody submits their case to a, a, a UFO organization and it doesn't really go well. Um hmm. You know, but I'd I'd like to see CE5 studied in a similar fashion as remote viewing was, mm-hmm. and it would you wouldn't need terribly much to to get a good study done, right? And I'm confident if they did the study, they'd get some kind of reports of anomalous phenomena. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, again, given variables, if if you know, ultimately the phenomenon has to kind of participate, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, the phenomenon is either going to show up or it's not, and it's 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 their call, right? You know, exactly. so there 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 are complex um, kind of variables in place, but I think it's doable. 
I, I absolutely think it's doable. And mm-hmm. I think that CE5 is something I appreciate about it is I think it's repeatable. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the realizations that I, that I had during the experiences was that, you know, no, I can tell somebody all day about this and, and they can completely believe me, but that, that doesn't have the same effect on an individual as, as if they had that experience themselves. Oh, sure. Absolutely. That yeah. kind of direct experience is, has a transformative quality. Again, it, it's kind of similar to John Mack's passport of the cosmos. You know, once you have that contact experience, you know, all bets are off and everything's on the table. Right. Right. You, and a new reality has been opened up. Right. And, and right. so that's why I think C5 is, is, you know, in part so important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not only does it tell us a, something about the UFO phenomenon, but also about ourselves and, you know, our potential capacities and capabilities, you know, and, and so much more to explore kind of in between those lines. Sure. Uh, have you thought about contacting Steve and uh, signing up, so to speak? providing your expertise, uh, working uh, in parallel somehow. Steve? Yeah. Stephen Greer? Yeah. I, I think nowadays that I think people need to to branch out. I don't think it should all be under Stephen Greer or, or anybody no, no. else. Okay. So okay. I, Yeah, I there's think, always room for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. I think uh, that um, – I mean, there, there, there need to be a number of initiatives that move in that direction with CE5. And, you know, the first one or the second one or the third one might not work, right? I mean, right. in, in an experiment, you might have to do it a thousand times before you get it right. You know, it's, sure. we may so, be talking about a whole new scientific discipline here. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and there's so many interesting aspects involved with that. And, you know, what me and my friend, the hermetic penetrator, have called interactivity you know, the quality of the interaction um, is, is, um, you know, it's unique and, uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's complex and it's fascinating. Um, But so getting a bit to um, the, uh, you know, behavior of the phenomenon, you know, you mentioned in your book, you go over kind of positive interactions versus when people act with hostility. So in, in those regards, were there different kind of reactions from the phenomenon given the circumstance? Well, um, as I recall, there's a lot of cases there and there's a lot of diversity then, but as I recall, uh, a common, a, a fairly common response was avoidance that the phenomenon didn't want to be shot at. And I don't blame it. (laughs) Um, And avoidance in general, uh, whether it was silence or turning dark against a sky background so it couldn't be seen or moving quickly out of the way um, or putting up a defense of some invisible shield of force or whatever uh, as we heard from the uh, Korean case. So I guess I would encourage people just to look in the book and to do their own reading and to update the book. The book's old now. It's been out quite a while. And how many other documented, well-defined cases can be found to make a new book? 
I encourage someone to go out and try to write another one. That that would be fantastic. That's actually a great idea. And I believe, you know, at least some of the material. Yeah, the materials there. You just got to find the good ones. Basically, it's it's available because, you know, there's a number of, you know, even if you want to talk about, uh, you know, Christopher Bledsoe just came out with his book. But, you know, his his case was well reported and there was a kind of interaction that went on there. Um, but uh, I do want to shift gears again um, a little bit. You know, given we're talking about CE5 and interactions, what are what are some of your thoughts about you know UFOs and and uh, as related to the psychic phenomena? As, as related to what psychic? Psychic phenomena. Psychic phenomena. Oh, Ooh, that's a heavy subject. It is. It is. <laughs> that's a frightening subject. It raises the issue of what is consciousness. Yeah, And uh, does the skull of the human being block any frequencies or not? Uh, and there's debate on that. Um, it's a complex subject that I guess I would rather wait and let history uh, teach me because I don't have anything to teach it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, another interesting book of yours, which I, I hadn't been able to get a copy of, actually, but I was very interested in it because, you know, uh, some of your books are out of print. Um, you have a book called uh, UFO Phenomena and the Behavioral Scientist. So can you talk a little bit about that book? Sure, sure. It's bas- I was editing it, basically, and contributed a couple chapters, but... Each chapter was written by a professional in different fields from their perspective. And back in the 1990s, when it was being put together, um, I know 80s, it was 1980s, uh, there was no book like this because no publisher would touch it. No publisher wanted to be known as the publishing of, of these kind of books. In science now, this was a serious science-oriented book. Um, And so I had psychologists uh, contribute chapters, uh, a a psychiatrist, psychologist, a sociologist, an engineer, um, and I believe a physiologist. But the point is this. I was trying to collect an assortment of points of view and each one could choose any subject they wanted. I didn't tell them what to write about. And so they, many of them presented chapters about cases they'd studied themselves. And one of the chapters was about Hollywood imagery that might be captured in the consciousness of Americans through mass media and be showing up as reality somehow. Um, that was an interesting chapter. Um, a lot of dr- illustrations and drawings and so forth, which I think could be important. So at any rate, that particular book was published by Scarecrow Press. And it Scarecrow is my understanding, at least back then, maybe not now, um, had almost every major library in the country on its distribution list. So that book is showing up in in 
little and large libraries around the country. Um, and it's been very well received. It's gotten some good reviews, and I'm pleased for that. And I have to tell you that CE5 hasn't gotten any reviews, and it's as if nobody's read it. And I was, I'm still disappointed at that, except I'm glad to hear that you've read it. I I think it's 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 a must read for anybody that's researching UFOs. Well, thank and, you. <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, it's it's great to have seen somebody take on ce5 and report on it and communicate on it in a different way than say Stephen greer would um you know especially somebody of your background and and the way that in what you wrote it and reported it is going to be taken different than you know somebody else so uh, you know again i, I think the different ap- approaches are important mm-hmm. and um I, if anybody can get their hands on on the ce5 book that you wrote Richard Haynes. I, I suggest people go on Amazon and try to get it. It's yeah. Are you able to get it um, formatted somehow to Kindle? Because the, the paperback is, yeah. No, no, I'm not into that. Yeah. The I don't paper- have that much time of life left. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. Cause the, the paperback is, uh, I think if you go on Amazon, it's like $60 now, if you is can find I, a copy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's not too steep. Yeah, I'm sorry for that. Um, But you can say that about a lot of books, too. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, So also, um, I wanted to, you know, this is a speculative question um, since we're here, right? Uh, If, you know, given all the research you've done, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on you know, the UFO phenomenon, uh, you know, versus a phenomena like, you know, there being several different intelligences or, or possible sources for UFO sightings that are what we would consider non-human intelligence. If, hmm. you know, if we were going to make that leap. <laughs> You're talking about ET? Yeah. What do you think that there's, there's possibly one more than one source for what we consider the UFO phenomenon? Oh, oh. Uh, I have to say yes, yes, uh, and, and the reason why, um, I don't say that just glibly, that I believe, I believe in God as a creator, and I believe he's infinitely creative, and I believe that that creativity is being displayed on our own planet. If you open your mind and, and your eyes and look around, you'll see his creativity there in all domains. So by then the next step is to see him creating life on, on all, on not all, but a lot of other planets that will support life. And, and astronomers are finding a lot of them. Uh, and so to say that those extraterrestrials, whatever form they might take, some of them have space programs. And they've set out a thousand years ago or whatever. Um, and far more advanced than ours in our physics and uh, engineering and chemistry and so forth. And so they've gotten here before we've gotten there. We're just getting started in our um, uh, extrasolar research, sending out unmanned vehicles and so forth, and eventually manned vehicles as well. And so they beat us to the punch. So 
that's the basis for which I believe there's a multitude of different ET, if you will. And I know that this is a very controversial subject and I will hear a lot about it from my friends. Uh, but to me, that's just logical. It's just logical. Yeah. Who am yeah, I? Yeah. Who am I to to limit God's creativity? I can't do that. Okay. That's my initial assumption. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think, yeah, if 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 the universe is so vast, and you know, <laughs> again, if there was a civilization that was ten thousand or a million years ahead of us, it's you know, it's almost inconceivable as to what they would be able to create. Right. Um, and their the technology they could potentially utilize um mm-hmm. yeah because i think you know if you come to the idea of you know the phenomenon is real uh you know ufos are are, are genuine reality it's it's not at that point it's it's not really far of a stretch to to imagine that there's you know one or more other you know phenomena um that could be responsible for what we consider the UFO phenomenon, especially given all the different qualities of interaction, um, the different types of craft we might see um, and, and the different, uh, you know, levels of technology that we assume, you know, we assume to see um, that are reported at least. James, in your experiences you've had, did you feel that there was a communication between them and you? Yeah. Yes. And so, but, and at, at the time, at that time, I, it was very visceral and it was very literal and mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm a meditator and, and what have you. Um, and again, over just observing different experience over the years, I've, I've, my my perspective on it has shifted a bit because again at, at that point in in the beginning i was taking it very literal and as time has gone on i i'm unsure if that was my interpretation of it if it was again i don't think so but if it was some kind of manipulation where you know they were implanting thoughts and feelings or whatever it's it's possible i can't write that off mm-hmm. uh, but it felt it felt genuine um but could it have also been symbolic or if, if the UFO phenomenon is something so advanced and it was just trying to use concepts that I would be able to understand and be familiar with in, in a way to relate, so to speak. Um, I don't know which one of it, those it was, but uh, in short, yes. <laughs> so if somebody asked you, what was the message they gave you? Could you have an answer? Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. And again, it would be through a lens of perception. So stop having wars and stop polluting the earth and that sort of thing. I had, I had, um, you know, visions of things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in my own research on abductions, I'll just divert a little bit into that if it's all right. It's fine. Um, Eddie Bullard, a professor and a very good researcher on this subject of abductions, 
uh, has categorized a number of events that almost always happen leading up to the abduction or involving the abduction afterward, uh, pre, during, and post. Well, I'm getting a bad image here. Yeah, your screen's going a little haywire. Yeah, what's going on here? Maybe somebody doesn't want me to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, in my own interview, not interviews, but counseling with people who claim to have been abducted, I find that his list of responses, if you will, uh, fit what I was finding. And one of the very early initial responses of a person uh, who's home at, home at night alone, for instance, a woman doing dishes at the back in the kitchen, looking out of a window into the dark. One of the first things that happens is what I call the alerting response. And it's usually a light, but sometimes it's a sound that causes the person to, to turn and look towards that direction. And so I got this idea, what if that alerting, orienting response is, is a key which allows a, a better access into the nervous system visually. I call it basically a, a photic, um, oh, I forget the name of it now, that I used years ago. I've never published this, by the way. But the point is, you look at the, the occipital cortex back here, the back of the head, the, the shape of the skull, all right, like this. And it's basically a parabolic or antenna or reflector. And so our parallel rays can come in and then be focused down to a point, the focal point of that mirror, right? So I did research on the, the water content and the reflectivity to different wavelengths of the bone, the human bone. And there's a difference between dead bone from an anatomy, you know, a person who's been a, in a, a car accident is now dead, no water there, versus the reflection and absorption of those radiant, those energies coming in to water content bone. And then I said, well, what portion of the brain lies at the focal point? So that if we're looking this way, okay, right towards you, and you're sending energy of some kind, you want to get my head oriented so that you can come in and be focused by the brain, the, the cortex, and not the cortex, the, the, the skull, back of the skull. Now, I don't know if that makes any sense, uh, but it's a line which I looked at quite thoroughly. And there's, there's a possibility there's something to that idea. And I just throw it out, never published it, never told hardly anybody about it. Uh, but... To me, it's kind of a creative idea that ought to be explored by someone, some a group of MIT um, people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, th that's why I'm I'm glad you're in the field. I wish you did publish something on it, but it's it's important to be discussing these kind of approaches, right? Um, because I think, it, you know, in doing so, we're going to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and. If the, if the phenomenon is as complex and mysterious as we think it is, so far from science that, that our science can't touch it yet, it's going to take a multidisciplinary, very creative, thinking out of the box, 
kind of uh, an approach to even get close to it. And so far, I don't see very much of that happening. Right. It, it seems like the that kind of discussion is now just beginning uh, in 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 the public because, you know, there are many more people nowadays that are open to the reality of the UFO phenomenon, you know, thanks to people like Lou Elizondo and Leslie Kane. And, and I, I mean, de- for decades and decades of people that who have, have contributed over the years to the study and research and, and engagement with the UFO phenomenon. But, you know, more recently, whatever thin ice was there broke. And we're, you know, we're in different territory now where, uh, you know, you have people like Dr. Gary Nolan, um, who, you know, is a very serious research sci- scientist at Stanford University who's openly, publicly, spokenly, you know, spoken about this on podcasts and TV. And he's he's um, proposed a kind of very unique um, way to get academics involved and more academics are getting involved. And I think, you know, that the reality of UFOs being established of, you know, people call confirmation or disclosure, you know, it is important in the sense that if you have all those people on board now, if, you know, if somebody gives them the green light, I I think it'd be many people would be interested, number one, and number two, um, there's, there's so much, I think, that would come out of that. And I think we're just beginning to see people asking that question is how can i get involved what studies can be done you know so it's it's um Mm -hmm. it's it's really uh extraordinary to be witnessing this firsthand right now well one of the motivators for scientists is money yeah (laughs) and there's no funding that we know of not major funding that's required for this level of work seti fortunately had government sponsorship for its passive microwave listening for for signals, again, for intelligent signals, basically. But other than that, there's been almost no major funding available. And publishers have been closed-minded and not accepting manuscripts from scientists. I've had a number of my papers turned down and sent back. That sounds a little self-serving, but it happened. Uh, And so um, Peter Sturrock at Stanford uh, and others put together the uh, SSE, Society for Scientific Exploration, many years ago now. And it's about the only only journal I know of that uh, will accept these kinds of anomalous subjects, basically. Um, can I go back briefly talk yeah. about a interview I had with a Brazilian farmer who he and his wife lived in a little shack let's say in a plot of land right on the, the Amazon River and he happened to be invited to a UFO conference in Rio de Janeiro years ago and I happened to and I was a speaker there Uh, I happened to have lunch with he and his wife. Um, And he told me the most fantastic abduction story I'd ever heard. And I won't go into details, except his wife was a witness to him being taken aboard and supported everything he said. 
But what he told me was that once he was inside the craft, the two beings that had escorted him and literally carried him aboard uh, the craft, one of them came and sat at a control panel, like a pilot seat, if you will, with instruments and uh, whatever. The other one stood behind him, so he couldn't see him. And then after a period of time, he said it was as if they were trying to describe their their controls or some technology or something as if he would understand them, which he didn't. He was standing there awestruck and kind of paralyzed and kind of looking around a bit. And the, the four foot tall being, let's say, who was sitting in front of him got up, walked to his right and walked towards a solid metal wall. There were no instruments on it, no doors or anything like just a solid piece of stainless steel, let's say, and merged and went right through the the wall until he was invisible. He he went kind of slowly through it. Um, And Satius was his name, this, this gentleman I'm describing. He said he was flabbergasted. He'd never seen anything like that. And then the being standing behind him tapped him on the shoulder or took him by the hand. He didn't go into details, turned him around and and motioned for him to follow, to do what the first alien had just done. Well, he said, no, I can't do that. That's a solid wall. And the other guy behind him uh, repeated his request, I guess, more forcibly, I don't know. And so Satius starts to walk towards the wall. And he told me that he literally went through that wall and showed up on the other side of it, turned around and looked back, and it was a solid wall. Okay. It wasn't like a one-way mirror kind of an event. Um, Here's my point. What if we, in our technology, great technology and, and brilliant minds on this planet, could make an opening in a solid wall that would maintain the outline of the the person within a half inch or so, and then close up immediately afterward, as opposed to doors on hinges now, which have been around for how many million years? Um, And doors in and the, the flies and the insects come in and the hot air goes out and cold air comes in and so forth and so on. To me, this is a creative hint that the technology of this craft that came down in Brazil was demonstrating to a Brazilian uh, and thus to me eventually at this conference and now me to you, you're in New York and maybe some viewers eventually. Uh, I'm not saying we know how to do this, but I'm saying we should try you know, is this virtual reality, virtual technology? I don't know. But it's a great idea to develop a door, an entryway that we can go through bodily um, in, in our 3D form, our physical form, and just have an opening the right size temporarily for letting us through and nothing else but us. Does it make sense? Yeah. So me, that's, that's creativity. 
that, yeah. that's not what I'm saying, but what the Satius told me he saw. Now, could a Brazilian farmer make up that kind of a story? That's what the that's what the skeptic would say, that he saw it on a science fiction TV program or something. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Yeah, and there, you know, uh, Dr. Diana Pasolka had written a book called American Cosmic, and it actually discussed um, some different scientists that were having experiences. You know, one of them we know now is Dr. Gary Nolan. That's been publicly. Uh, disclosed um, that these people had contact encounters and, and, you know, because of the encounters, it inspired different technologies and inventions, you know, which is, uh, that's a fascinating concept because even, even just in this kind of indirect interaction with the phenomenon in a sense, without it landing and disclosing Uh itself, uh, you know, there's still all these, you know, consequences uh so to speak you know for better or worse and that that gets into the idea of um you know jacques valet had called uh some of these like crash sites gifting fields and um i wonder you know based on some of that if you have any any um insight or comments on jacques valet's control model like the phenomenon acting in a way that's Hmm. guiding our evolution to a degree Uh uh-huh uh yeah we've talked about that to some degree and i i think he's on to something um if the phenomenon exists and if it is intelligent it's very likely a lot more intelligent than we are um so given those precepts beginning starting point uh, why wouldn't this advanced intelligent want to communicate? I asked you if you felt you'd been communicated with, right? Uh, and I've interviewed a lot of people who say, yes, they have, they have a message. They end up with a new message in their mind they didn't have before. That's communication, right? Uh, or imagination, but I think it's communication. So yeah, I think Jacques is really onto something there. Um, and it calls for the involvement of social scientists who are now hiding in their ivory towers. Come out of the ivory towers. Get involved in an exciting field of research. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I'd love to see um, uh, more people involved in the subject. And I, it, again, I have seen it happen and it is occurring, but you know, we're we're 70 or 80 years behind, at least from the 1940s, when this issue became very modernized and popular and the idea of unidentified flying objects and, and you know, as intelligent, intelligently controlled vehicles from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is, is there anything you would like to say about uh, UFOs and, and uh, flight safety Thanks. in particular? Yeah. Sure, sure. Aviation uh, safety. Sure. Uh Ted and I wouldn't have gone ahead with NARCAP if we hadn't found physical evidence, recorded cases from the National Transportation Safety Board, for instance, uh who does top-notch research, by the way, um, where the phenomenon is 
either distracting the pilot, which is not good. You want to fly with full attention on your airplane. <laughs> navigate, navigate, communicate, right? Uh, the phenomenon might get in the way of the of the airplane flying along, which causes the pilot to have to deviate, to change course or altitude or to descend, basically. Uh, we found cases where the nearness of the phenomenon to the airplane, this is the phenomenon, this is the airplane, the closer it gets, the, the stronger the electromagnetic effect is on the airplane. The instruments might change their settings. The, the compass, for instance, will vary in its pointing direction. Or the um, automatic direction finder, which is not good, that's part, partly how you fly in a straight direction. Or the, um, uh, well, many other human, uh, cockpit systems then are influenced by the presence of the object, which come back to normal usually when the phenomena goes away. That, sub, that tells you that it's a signal strength issue, uh, basically. Um, a number of good cases like that in NARCAP files, which by the way, all of our research is published and it's all on the internet, narcap.org. Just go there and look under research. Um, I encourage people to do that. You'll find some really interesting cases there. Yeah, yeah. And again, yeah. you you were a chief scientist there for a number of years. About um, 20 years. Yeah. That's that's pretty incredible. You must have came across and spoken to some incredible witnesses over all that time. We did. Yeah, very impressive witnesses. That's right. And I'm not about to look a guy in the face and say, you made this up. Yeah. Not when his job is on the line and he might get fired. Um, yeah. And speaking to that, can you can you talk about the importance of pilot test witness testimony? Oh. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Uh, and Ted likes to tell this story as well. Um, that a co-pilot in a major American airline, I will not say which one, um, was, I guess, with his wife and family were going across near Area 51. You know about Area 51? And he happened to stop and get a little souvenir wallet card which I haven't seen it myself, but he said it was an extraterrestrial visitation card or something like that. It was, it was a souvenir of the place he stopped in for coffee, I guess, or gas or something. He put it in his wallet and forgot about it. And he said he was flying one day in the right seat across the country and talking with the, the, the pilot. No, he was in the left seat. He's a captain. I'm sorry. That's right. And he was, he happened to remember this card in his wallet and he pulled it out and showed it to the first officer. I guess just they were bored and wanted to talk about something. Um, well, come to find out, um, after they landed, the co-pilot turned him in. And the, this pilot told us that he got a request to come see the psychiatrist the airline psychiatrist, just because of this, all right? That's how sensitive this whole culture is to this very important subject. 
Um, to me, what you and I are talking about is really important. Maybe for the future of the country, the future of the world, uh, the future of science, perhaps. But it's, it's not a historical subject at all. It's an ongoing, real life, real time uh, set of, of information that we've got to cope with. And you, in your own uh, lifetime, are coping with your experience, right? You haven't stopped. You haven't right. stopped. Well, the pilots who've seen these things are forever changed. They're never going to stop. They're involved. You talk to a Navy pilot or whoever. Um, once their reality has been confronted like this, they have no other direction but to continue. To do otherwise is, is a clinical um, denial, which might put you into a psychiatric realm. Um, so I guess what I'm saying, in kind of in conclusion here, that what you're doing is important and you should do what you can to get as educated as you can and then collaborate with others. Don't go it alone. That That's the kiss of death in a symbolic sense. That, that to me is a, a dangerous thing to do. That if you had, not you, but if anyone has had a close encounter, uh, tell someone you love. Share it with someone. Get it out. Don't hold it inside. Document when and where it happened. Take as much, you know, memory as you can. Pull back and, and record it all right away before it fades. And some will fade. Not all of it. Some will be repressed and you won't be able to get it out without superhuman. Uh, approaches, you know, pentothal or hypnosis or whatever. And so yeah. Yeah. I guess that's my advice, particularly to you. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I really appreciate having you on, uh, Rich. You're like, you know, super, super brilliant. And I'm really grateful that you have done all the work that you have, uh, and everything that you've contributed to the field. Um, you know, the books you've written, NARCAP, all that. Um, so I really appreciate your time and having you on. And um, are, do you have any any parting words to the audience, maybe? Well, I'd have to know who your audience is because yeah. I'd like to speak, you know, in a pointed fashion that makes sense and has a real value for their own lives. Um, when we look at UFO phenomena, from a wider lens, we find that it can show up at any time, any place, unexpectedly. Well, what's the implication of that? It's very simple. Everyone becomes a potential witness. If anyone on this planet can be a witness sooner or later, doesn't it make sense that all those witnesses can contribute to science by doing a better job of remembering reporting, um, recording what they experience. It still doesn't turn it into scientific quality data, except perhaps for psychologists and sociologists. That's okay, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Um, the, the history of science supports that in terms of identifying planetary regression in orbit. 
and so forth. Um, it doesn't take PhDs in astronomy to do what needs to be done here. It, it might take a collaborative affair, in fact, a collaborative effort, I should say, by a whole lot of different disciplines coming together and working as a team. Yeah, and I, I sure hope to see that happen. Me too. Um, but again, thank you so much, uh, Richard, uh, for coming on, joining me and talking with me. And I, I, ho- I hope to speak to you again soon. James, it's been a pleasure, and I wish you the best of luck. And uh, I hope that uh, you'll have another encounter. <laughs> thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.